to do a land and expand strategy, you need to go higher in the hierarchy. When you go into a co- an executive committee, they don't have a lot of time. And like to tell them something that is worth their time, it needs to be like highly value providing. So typically, if one of my clients that has like the French entity goes to the executive committee and says, absenteeism has decreased by 5% for us in the last year, thanks to this initiative we put in place, it is very comex friendly. that helps you open and thrive in foreign markets. This is Steve here speaking, and for today's episode, we will focus on the strategy of lending and expanding to go international. For those who don't know, this is a go-to-market strategy that focuses on getting an initial foothold within a market or within a specific company, then leveraging that foothold to expand your reach within the account or within the market. And I'm welcoming Anthony Munoz Cifuente, co-founder of Myriad, a startup that was born international, to tell us how they have mastered the art of this strategy of lending and expanding. Hi, Anthony. Thank you so much for coming here in the International Corner Podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, Tiffen, I'm doing great. Very happy to be able to share these experiences with you uh, uh, today. Yes, I'm very excited because uh, we've known each other like for uh, more than a year now, and uh, I'm very excited to, to, to see the progress that you've done over the past few years. And today we are going to discuss how you guys went international and started very early on to go international. I'm very, I'm very keen to, to share your learnings with the audience today. But perhaps before digging into that, could you start by introducing yourself, Myriad, and, and your role maybe in this uh, international expansion? So my name is Anthony. I'm the co-founder of uh, Myriad. Um, I started with a brief career in uh, market finance in London. And six years ago, I started to create companies. And my first company was in Singapore. Um, and when you create a company in Singapore, it's immediately global because Singapore is literally a city. So if your market is Singapore itself, it's going to be very quickly small. And so I guess that's why since then I've always uh, created companies that are born global because my first one was born global because it had to, it just had to. I've heard that, for instance, a lot of startups are very successful in Israel or in Sweden because they know that if they just make a startup for uh, their uh, home market is just not going to work. And so they are all born global. So that's the story for me. Like, uh, since I've always been kind of forced to do that, uh, now I try to do that every time. And my first startup uh, was created with the same partner I have today. And one of them lives in Shanghai. Um, so that's another reason why we've always been international. And by the way, a quick word about what we do today at Myriad. So we are a B2B company in the mental health space. So what we basically do is we help companies improve their core HR metrics. That is stuff such as absenteeism, 
uh, burnout, turnover, the way you appear to external employees and how you're attractive to people uh, so that they want to work in your company. And your and, uh, like the like the brand, I guess, branding, external branding. Exactly, like employer mm. branding, yeah, employer mm. branding. And so we're in this space and we have half of the team uh, in France and half of the team in uh, in China. I have um, this uh, concept every every episode that, that's called the icebreaker. Just imagine you have a dice, there's six faces, right? Which, can you just like tell me a number and I will read you a question that you would have to answer, I guess. Four. Four, okay, so number four. Who is a person that inspires you and why? Elon Musk. Okay, um, why? He's the... There's two things that made me jump and become an entrepreneur. The book from Peter Thiel, From Zero to One. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why I discussed about uh, that with you like uh, 10 minutes ago before the recording. <laughs> and the story of Elon Musk. What I love with Elon Musk is he has this capability to address incredibly macro and big problems and yet to milestone them so that it's not um, the kind of business where it's either zero or either one. Typically, my first company was a deep tech. Mm -hmm. And it was the kind of company where you R&D, 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 and you either succeed in your R&D and you have a billion dollar company, or you don't and you have nothing. And Elon Musk, he can do that, but instead of being like zero, 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 and eventually one, it managed to do like step by step. That's what okay. he did with SpaceX. It's like a rocket company. So that's typically what you would see as the kind of business where you have absolutely nothing until you have something big. He managed to like, he's the first person that ever managed to do that. But he also did it with Tesla with like the strategy of being, okay, first, what we're going to do is a car for the one per 1,000 that is going to cost like a half a million dollars. And from that, we're going to use the profit to make a car for like for the top one person. That was the model S. And then from that, we're going to move on to mass market. And that's the model three. Mm -hmm. And so he always does things like that. Even like when he was in his early 20s, uh, he asked himself, what are the five big problems to humanity? And he was like, uh, internet, make human humanity a multiplanetary species, the energy transition, etc. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, okay, so that's the five problems I want to spend my life on. And he was like, what can I do right now? I, know ju I just know how to code and have zero money in the pocket. So he was like, okay, step one is going to be the internet. That's how he created PayPal. He used that money to then create a Tesla and SpaceX. So what I mean is mm -hmm. that every time he has plan for something that is incredibly big, but yet he manages to make a step-by-step -step, uh, plan so that he can actually reach through iteration, through small steps, his big goal. And that, to mm -hmm. me, is the best in the world at doing that. And his results keep proving that he manages to do that. And so is that, so is that something you... <laughs> and uh, is that something you, you, you try to do as well, you know, uh, like, for instance, in your current uh, startup? Yes, yes, definitely. I'm the kind of person that do this kind of uh, long-term plan. But yet, how do you make this long-term plan that really looks like a moonshot with, like, some step-by-step Uh, milestones that them they really seem achievable mm -hmm. and then how do you lay down some concrete steps that make you achieve those milestones step-by-step mm. -step process is uh, is uh, always good to make sure that you um, you keep seeing that there's improvement even though you're not yet uh, at the end of the journey yes. but uh, i mean is there a video end <laughs> let's um maybe open up the topic of today um perhaps 
to give the listeners a better view about where you guys are at right now. Could you tell us a little bit more about the state of internationalization of Myriad, maybe a few numbers you can share so that we understand like what does it mean for you right now to go international? So right now we are at seed stage. Uh, we are self-funded. Uh, we have uh, uh, around like 20 clients, uh, more than 50, like 60% of our turnover is um is made in the, internationally. Our main, mar I mean, our like uh, main country is France. We're a French company, but more than 50% of the turnover is made outside of France. But the more it's going, the more we are actually switching to even a higher percentage of that, close to 70 to even 80% of our turnover and being international. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say that's, uh, that's, how, that's our stage in terms of internationalization. Okay. And... When did you start? Did you start from scratch, actually? Yes. Yes. Um, our first uh, letter of intent from, from a client, which was like a, even pre-product a few months uh, after uh, deciding to launch Myriad, was not a French company. Mm -hmm. uh, since the beginning of the company, the work language is English, and we had to because half the team is in China. So we just had to. Um, we, from V1 of the app, the app is developed in English and French from V1. And now we have actually four languages. Uh, and we've immediately started to sell to like uh, international clients. It was like from the very beginning. And why you mentioned half of the team is in China. Why China? Why did you put half of your team there? So we are three founders, myself and uh, Theo. Uh, like taking care of the business. We met in Dauphine, in, the, in, the, in our university in Paris. And my third uh, partner is in, lives in Shanghai. He used to be the CTO of Decathlon. And I met him during my first startup that was in Singapore. He was already the CTO back in the time. And so we decided to associate again to create this new venture. And uh, so obviously he lives in China. So he stayed in China. And since he's the CTO, we decided that it would only make sense and that he built the tech team from there. All right. So, yeah, from the get-go, you are international as well because of the co-founder and the uh, opportunity. Exactly. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Maybe since we are on the topic, because you said that uh, you guys started to be international from scratch, what does it take exactly to, to, to manage to sell this early internationally? Because as you said, the, the first two people, uh, after you were three, but you guys, you know, like came from France. So it would be easy just to say, yeah, let's start to sell in the French market. So how did, how did you guys start? So there is definitely some product implication. Um, like, I guess this podcast is mainly addressed to like salespeople, but just so that... To be, to, be, to be clear, one of the main obstacles on the beginning is on the product size because mm -hmm. it complexifies a lot your architecture once you decide that there are several languages. Um, so I would say that's the main struggle at the beginning. But if we go on the sales side, there's an idea of culture, of not being too ethnocentric, understanding that your culture is perceived differently somewhere else. They have different cultures, so you need to understand that. Um, and this is a lot in the sales and also marketing and image that you sent. So you need to think about those stuff. And for us, it was since the beginning. And also because just as we have a binational team, mm -hmm. we were helped to not be too ethnocentric with the with France, 
because we have half of the team that is Chinese with such a different culture. So we have this mm. mindset of like uh, understanding, like really questioning yourself. Um, like there's a lot of stuff that we believe is just like this because this is our culture. And this, there is this constant idea of questioning yourself. Is it like this because you're French or is it like this for everyone? And you need to ask that to yourself. And that's a big implication when you want to start to Americans, for instance, or Chinese, um, which are some of our clients typically. It's not the same for them. What you believe is standard is incredibly different for them. Mm -hmm. So that's something that you need to be mindful of. All right. So you mentioned two things that you guys were struggling slash, I would say, uh, trying to focus on at the beginning. Product considerations, obviously, the more different markets you, you, you start to sell in, the more complexity needs differ, I would say, from one market to a, another. And the second being like the culture, trying to really make sure that there's a questioning, understanding of uh, different cultures internally. Communication in English, I guess, as you mentioned, like was, was key. And I'm, I'm guessing every, um, every sales support, every documentation also internally was in English from, from day one, I guess. Yes. From day one, our notion, our internal database is in English. Um, all the product specifications, everything is in English. The only French communication are between the sales team or like the, the business people that are within the French team. Just as a is, we communicate in French, but as soon as it's, some like a written knowledge, if it, even if it's only targeted for the French market, it's going to be. All right. All right. So let's talk about lead generation. Like what's your focus, right? Because you said uh, today that there's more than 50% of your revenue that comes from not France, basically like any, any, any other market. Mm -hmm. How did you start? What's your strategy there to grow internationally? So since the beginning, our strategy is uh, land and expand. Um, I will explain what it means. Um, land and expand, the idea is you enter on a, as quick as possible sales cycle into a company that has a lot of potential for itself. What it means for us is we target company ideally around 5,000 employees. So we are not talking enterprise. We are talking about solid SMEs, like quite solid SMEs. Some can even be listed companies. Uh, but that are, have like small offices, either like subsidiaries or like uh, small offices around 100 to 200 people, 100 to 300 people, I would even say, 100 to 300 people. Typically, what usually these type of companies have is a high level of autonomy and decentralization. These small entities have a reasonably high decision power, and it means that they can act quickly. And you can have like very quick sales cycle where you sign what is like a POC, but a, a decent POC for us, it would be around like a 10 to 15K RRR, um, mm, annualized sorry. recurring. Yeah, just for yes. the audience, uh, POC, P-O-C means proof of concept. Mm. Yes. And so we start with them. If the POC, the, so the proof of concept uh, is successful, suddenly they can like discuss about their initiative with the bigger entity being the group and saying like, look, guys, this is what we did, worked very well for us. How about we extend that a bit bigger? And then suddenly you have like a very highly qualified introduction where your client is introducing to himself, to other people into the same company by saying, guys, we did that. It works so well. I think you should do it too. 
for instance, from the French market to the Italian market or the German market. With one of our, of, uh, with one of our very first clients, which is Canada Goose, was like that. We started with France, went very well, and very quickly they told us, okay, actually, we want you to take care of all the retail team that we have throughout Europe. And it implied that we would need to have like the app in Italian and in German, which we didn't. And they wanted that so bad that they said, you know what, guys, we will find the translation of your product in Italian and German, because they were so like satisfied with what happened um, in France. And so that was like a clear proof to us of the potential of internationalization through a French subsidiary. All and right. we've done that with several of our clients. A few points on that I wanted to come back to. The first is that you mentioned basically that for you, best way to go after your land and expense strategy was to find uh, the subsidiary, small subsidiary based in France where they have a high level of autonomy and high decision power. Clear on that. And you said once you sign the first French entity, then hopefully they can make you highly qualified introductions to other subsidiaries. So uh, like, like the example you mentioned, maybe even sometimes all throughout Europe. You mentioned something that product-wise that you had translations to do. Is that the only, I would say, request you get? Because from one market to another one, sometimes there are even features missing. Does that work every time? Or sometimes do you have to just like not do it because product-wise, it just doesn't fit with your roadmap? Um, definitely, we saw with some markets that they required features that we didn't get. But usually we like that. We have a very powerful tech team um, and we love when our roadmap is actually, as long as it's in the vision, we, we love when our roadmap is modified by client needs. We think it's very healthy. And I don't know if like if this is a proper way to do it, but on our side, we really, we really like that. Again, as long as it fits within the, the global vision. So yes, I confirm. We definitely had with many clients requirements And which showed us typically like the difference in culture where some markets would tell us there's no way it's like that. And we didn't even realize that, but we saw through their eyes and we were like, I understand why. And that's typically the case with like the Chinese market or the American market where they see things like very differently. And then we had like to add new stuff in our, uh, in our product, which are activated for some uh, markets for typically With some of our clients, they don't see the same product based on the language they choose. They choose. Mm -hmm. So, as I said in the beginning, there's definitely some product requirement. It makes your product less lean, more complex. Um, but if your tech team can handle it, it's worth it. Okay. Okay. So for you, the main challenges are essentially coming from a product standpoint, not from I would say. Um, sales standpoint or did you did you i would say did you come across other issues for instance see uh, if you go uh, direct selling to other countries then you face some cultural differences in the way you negotiate etc like do you because you had that intro obviously it's easier but did you notice any other challenges besides product considerations by doing land and expand internationally i would say That's a very personal point of view that selling to a French is quite hard. It's quite hard. Um, the way French seem, that's really a personal opinion, but the way French works is 
they put a very high barrier to entry to trust you, accept to sell you. But once you crossed it, then you're very safe. You're like a trusted partner and they're going to work with you. So how to get in, but then you're safe. Where in Anglo-Saxon market is very different. Um, they trust you way more easily, but they're really going to put you into question every year. Like, do you provide value? No, get out. Um, so it's easier to get in, therefore easier to sell, but harder to retain. So regarding, is it, did I uh, encounter any struggle? I would say the opposite. I was very happily surprised how easier it is to sell to Americans, Canadian, English so far from what I saw than it is to sell to French. Also a very good advantage of uh, internationalization because the French prospect is hard to like get in in the first place. Um, but again, that's, that's a personal opinion. I didn't do any study on that. That's just mm. from my personal feeling after like having sold to both uh, French clients and Anglo-Saxon clients. Uh, Chinese are closer also to the to their Americans counterparts in the sense that it's going to be easier to get a chance, but it's going to be harder to stay because they are really going to challenge you on the value you provide. Okay, and just a, uh, maybe a small question on 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 China. Did you feel that being French was I want to say enough, even though that's not the right uh, thing that I want to say, but would you say that being French was, you know, like fine uh, to actually sell to Chinese just because you had that intro or, or do you have to have local uh, employees there? The cultural differences didn't impact in uh, on that way when you had to expand there? It's very hard, if not impossible, to sell to China via a non-Chinese entity. Um, why? Because of capital control in China. It's hard for them to send RMB, RMBs, uh, their money, uh, abroad. So we have an entity in China that is doing the invoicing. I think it might be possible. I'm sure it is possible, actually. But the, the amount of struggle they have to do, they won't do it unless like you're selling them planes, for instance. And then, yes, mm. they don't have a choice. So they're going to buy your plane and pay in euro. But unless it's something like this, Typically for a software, I highly doubt that except uh, Microsoft, uh, a lot of companies can actually sell a software to Chinese companies without having a Chinese entity. And even Microsoft, actually, I'm sure Microsoft has a, a Chinese entity that is doing the invoice. So that is because of the capital control. So they want to buy to a Chinese company, but they are very happy to know that actually we're a French company with a subsidiary. This is something that I think it's hard to say. I would say it Definitely is not a problem. Is that even a help? My instinct is that yes, um, but I'm not so sure. But yes, for sure, if you want to sell to China a software, get a Chinese entity. You cannot get paid by Chinese. It's very hard for them to pay you uh, outside of the country. Okay. But apart from that, basically, You can lead the conversations uh, yourself, like you don't have to include the Chinese counterparts so that they feel that maybe there's a... No, you do. You yeah, do. okay. You do. No, you do, you do. We have Chinese cells. You you definitely need, uh, unless you only target international company in China, which you have a lot. So it's still a massive market, like 10 times bigger than the French market. China, it's such a big country with so much businesses. So 
even this is a bit market, you you would be fine. Um, but un- unless it's that, you would need a Chinese uh, uh, to do the sell the sales in Chinese um, and the Chinese way. The way to sell in China is very very different than the way in the West. Um, it's very much um, personality based, like uh, creating a connection. They attach a huge huge um, importance to knowing you personally. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, sending via Zoom, they would want to, like, unless it's a very small stuff, they would want to have a dinner with you to know you better. Um, even to sending software. They're, they're like, you meet your clients uh, way more than you do in the West. And even within the context of land and expand, so say you get an intro from the French subsidiary to the Chinese one, do they need to actually meet you uh, in real life and then really build that trust or or can the process be expedited? Mm. We had that only once, uh, being introduced to the Chinese entity. Uh, discussion is still underway. We didn't sign so far and we didn't meet mm-hmm. so far. And But that was actually during the moment where you couldn't meet anyone in China during peak of lockdown. Uh, and I'm sure it didn't help. I'm very sure it didn't help the fact that we couldn't meet. So I would say that even with an internal introduction, it really helps to sell to China to be able to meet in person. It's just okay. so anchored into the, the mentality. Again, I didn't do any market study. That's from what I understood, what my partner, which is Chinese, uh, told me too. Uh, that it is way more, uh, like for instance, he has other businesses and he has, he has put managers in all of his businesses because being the main manager, the main sales of your business actually means going into road trip, meeting your client, having like uh, drinks with them a lot of the time. And he just doesn't okay. have time for that anymore. Mm, okay. Very, very interesting. Coming back to the topic of land and expand, does that mean that even when we're talking about internationally, so you you still focus on some areas, right? Like you seem to, to talk about like um, English speaking markets, uh, China, and probably a, a bit of uh, European companies. That's still a, a limit for you? Or do you consider yourself as being able yes. to sell virtually everywhere? I would say yes to virtually everywhere, but I'm not going to pursue it. The only mm. one I'm going to actively pursue is going to be China and the West. By the West, I mean France, uh, English-speaking country, countries, uh, Germany and uh, Benelux. And that's it. Even, for instance, I wouldn't consider uh, sending to Italy, to Spain. I'm not saying that okay. they are not interesting countries, but I focus to English-speaking countries, France, Germany and Benelux. All right, which are, I guess, also the the languages that are available today in your platform, right? Yes, I have Italian. I have Italian, okay. but I'm not targeting. It's also because of the market I perceive for what I sell. If I would perceive Italy as a big market for me, I would say it differently. But I know that the country I mentioned, so Canada, United States, UK, Germany, and Benelux are like my main markets. The Nordics mm-hmm. are also a big market. Uh, but I realized, I thought in the beginning that uh, for these countries where everyone speaks English, is fine. Uh, 
typically I try to push uh, the English version of Myriad to the Germans because mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. all speak English. And I received feedback from my German users that they were not happy about that. They didn't oh yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> exact. Yeah, yeah, so, they want to have a German platform that's why for sure. No. <laughs> which is which is normal. Which is normal. Yeah. So that's why I don't want to to attack anymore the Nordics because I realized that it means having the app in Swedish, in Norwegian, mm. in Finnish, in Danish, and that's there's just no way. There's just no way I'm gonna do these translations. Yeah. Um, you have to make choices. No, I understand. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> That's for sure. All right. Um, therefore, tell us a bit more about the lend and expense strategy. So once you lend the first deal, how soon do you do you start basically trying to get some intros to other subsidiaries? Does it happen after you after there's some kind of like customer success, you know, that's that's done so that they're happy with the product, or does it happen like quite early on, right after the first sale? So From even before the first sales, we really explained that we are into a partnership, that the idea is to serve the company globally and that we very much consider this as a POC, but not in a diminishing way, not in the way that, oh, we just want to try with you guys, but we, we don't really care. More in the way that the idea is to see if we can do something very successful for your company. And to do that, we need to prove you guys that we are very useful so that we plant the seed from even before the sales that we're in for the long run and for the big run, I would say, mm. in, the, in the global way. And so as soon as we can start to see some ROI, that we have delivered some ROI, that the client is satisfied, we're a, a bit more pushy in the sense that, oh, can we be introduced? But oh. very often it comes naturally. And I guess it comes naturally because put yourself in the shoes of the client. The client is, is an individual, meaning that, It has like also personal aspiration and typically wanting to shine and to be perceived as successful in the company is part of it. So if you decide to put into operation, like to, to start a project and the project is providing some very successful uh, results, then it's only natural to say to your managers and to others, look, guys, I did that and that was the result. And so by doing that very naturally, then you start to receive introduction for the For the expand, so there's this there's there's also this idea in the land and expand uh, strategy. You have to be customer centric, but in the sense of value centric, you have to be extra focused on providing value. Because if you do provide value, then it's only in the interest of your client to talk about it because it's going to be good for his own career. He's going to shine internally by saying, "Look how good I did." Uh, that was definitely the case with some of our clients where they were so proud of the initiative because of the nice uh, return on investment that they were very keen on talking about it. I would even say bragging about it internally by saying, look, guys, what I managed to do, I have such amazing results. And then obviously they come to us. And how soon does that, on average, how soon does that happen after you guys um, set up the solution and, and they can actually use it? Six months to a year. Okay. So you get six months to a year. All right. So for you, like the two, I would say, important steps, like first you have to kind of prepare the ground. So from the first discussion you have in pre-sale, I would say, uh, trying to make them understand that you're in for the long run, you want to uh, provide value within the, pa the partnership, then I guess let them ex experience the value, see the ROI, and then that's when they, they start basically giving you intros 
And I guess sometimes, like you mentioned, you don't even have to ask for it. It just comes naturally. Mm. Um, a thing I would add is some businesses are way better than mine typically to do that. Let's say you're doing like uh, an agency that uh, do social ads. It's very easy to prove your ROI. Did you improve the sales of this particular entity? And so that your ROI is going to be evident to the clients. But there are other businesses like mine, which are typically based on, based on human sciences. Um, it's very hard to see if the company is working better factually, quantitatively, when you're basically improving the mental health of employees. So if you have a business like mine, which uh, basically you're in the Champions League of proving ROI, there's nothing more difficult than proving ROI than when you do something like uh, I do, which is like uh, some human sciences, mm -hmm. proving like productivity, this kind of stuff. It's very hard to prove. Um, so when you have this kind of business, then you need to really have in mind that providing ROI is not enough because you need to help your client not only get, get convinced himself of the ROI, but be able to demonstrate that to others. So uh, which, to what, what, so what kind of ROI can they actually see from your solution then? Because yeah, it's definitely not that easy and there can be different criteria that can actually influence the same kind of uh, return of investment. The first thing is to be, to be absolutely sure of what pain you're solving. Mm. Once you know what pain you are solving, you need to decide together with the client a KPI, which gonna undoubt with, without any doubt is gonna like improve the pain. So typically for us, it's gonna be things such as absenteeism. Mm. It's not the only one. We have different verticals, but absenteeism is a, an, easy, an easy to understand and easy to measure. And why it's so important to have like this kind of uh, quantitative metric is that to do a land and expand strategy, you need to go higher in the hierarchy. And the higher you go, the more uh, they're gonna they're gonna want some things which doesn't create any doubt. When you go into a an executive committee, they don't have a lot of time, and for have like to tell them something that is worth their time, it needs to be like highly value providing. So typically, if one of my clients that has like the French entity goes to the executive committee and says, absenteeism has decreased by 5% for us in the last year. Thanks to this initiative we put in place, it is very COMEX friendly uh, uh, information. And suddenly you can have very healthy uh, discussion with the executive committee about, okay, guys, uh, I can see how much a 5% reduction of uh, absenteeism for my 5,000 people company, I can see the value it provides. So let's talk together and create a global partnership. And suddenly you're perceived as a partner instead of yet another SaaS that tries to push uh, its product and basically complexify an already very complex uh, stack that the company has in terms of all the SaaS uh, it's already paying. And, and what you're saying is very important, I think, Every company is trying to get there, trying to see, okay, what kind of uh, return on investment can you provide? How can you emphasize the value? And sometimes it's hard. And that's one of uh, my questions to you, or maybe to challenge you a little bit, but absenteeism for sure, if you manage to reduce it, it's great. But what if the client actually has different initiatives and how can you make sure that when they go to the board, to the executive committees, they actually can ensure that, uh, a decrease of 5% of absenteeism is linked to you guys and not just to some external initiatives they might have as well on the side. 
So what we do, I'm a bit telling you our secret recipe, so I would be vague, but you're very right. We are very right. Um, it's the question of attribution, because I can give you another example. Absenteeism can actually go up after I have been launched. And mm. it's obviously not because I launched my product that absenteeism is higher. Absolutely. It's because some external stuff are going to happen. So what we do, and I, I just won't go into too many details because I believe this is a huge trend that I have compared to my competitors. Mm. But I try to, to see what are the symptoms. Uh, I take absenteeism as the disease. And so the main pain I'm calling internally, we call it the disease. And so first, what we do is we try to identify the disease. And then from that, we identify what are the different symptoms of each disease. And the symptoms are going to be typically the core things we're going to work on. And we make sure that the company agrees with the symptoms that we're identifying as part of the disease. And so this we know because we do direct actions based on those symptoms. We know that we can, undoubt, without any doubt, proving that we have improved each and each symptoms. But sometimes, even if you improve the symptoms, the disease itself is staying. For instance, uh, you have a company and there is like a big macro event that happens that is going to uh, impact. Let's say I work with a factory and suddenly, like a, an industrial based company, and suddenly they decide to close one factory. Boom, what can you do about that? Or Ukraine war, for instance. I have a client that have, it's like a 6,000 employee company, but 20% of their employees were in Russia. Mm -hmm. That's what can I do about that? It had a massive impact on the company. So that's why I take like uh, this idea of like uh, symptoms where I know I can put my own attribution in that. So that's how we do it to make sure that we can put some concrete attribution. Okay, so concrete attribution, and as you said, okay, that's that's very interesting. So it means that sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's actually clear that there's the disease, as you're mentioning, there's a lot of symptoms, but you guys won't have an impact on all of them. But so hopefully when, when you solve, uh, when you cure, I would say uh, the, the symptoms you said you would cure, then this would improve, I would say, the general disease at least, and this could make your case. So sometimes it works, and I guess sometimes this might not be enough, I guess, if there's so many symptoms that... If you guys have just an impact on some of them, then maybe it's not enough to show an improvement of the general disease, right? Exactly. It's the same idea of, uh, I don't know if you know this analogy of, are you selling a painkiller or are you selling some vitamins? Some, exactly, yeah. Um, do you know this analogy? Like mm -hmm. It's the analogy of, uh, regardless on how poor you are, you're going to pay for your painkiller. But vitamin is going to be cut very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so typically... That's why we focus first on the disease, because if we are perceived as a painkiller of this disease, we are here forever. Mm -hmm. uh, but the problem we have is that our disease, it's very hard to have like, a, uh, for instance, if, you're, if your uh, disease is, I don't get enough inbound, and you're selling a, a solution that improves inbound, it's very clear your solution is a painkiller for this problem. Mm -hmm. But because I am in human science, I have to take um, side tracks, and my side tracks are basically curing symptoms. But this is typically what a vitamin would do, curing symptoms. So that's the idea of how can you be categorized as a painkiller when your product can very quickly be perceived as, as a, a vitamin. vitamin. That's a very good example, and uh, I like this uh, analogy a lot, actually. 
Let's talk about commitment, right? Because um, uh, I think that uh, when we talk on paper, that's that's great, right? To say you start the project, you agree, uh, you, you 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 agree on the symptoms you're supposed to cure, you try to have them accountable. But we all know that they have like tons of things to do as well. So how do you make sure that they keep track of the progress on a timely manner, and then it, you don't have to wait a year or two years? Because they just decide to do something else, you know. It's 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 very sometimes they set up a project, but then hundreds of things happen, and then they kind of are not really into it. Like, do you have also like some steps you guys follow to make sure that they're committed as well to make this uh, case like work to then being able to expand? So you mentioned a key point. It's really a key point, and a very easy way to have to uh, um, to how to say. To take into this into consideration is that you have to assume they don't care about you. It's your role to making them care about you. You have to constantly be the one that disclose the value. You have to, uh, because it's always going to be the way you said. They don't have time. Um, they have many other things to do, and very often you are not their core problems. Again, unless you are selling an outbound solution to a growth team. Yes, you are going to be their number one problems, and they're going to be so focused about you. So, but I, this is not my market, and many markets, you're going to basically not be the top priority of your clients. So many SaaS are not the top priority of their clients, and so it's your role to be able to disclose that, and that's why also it's so important to to be uh, to agree on the beginning when you're still on the honeymoon. Basically, they give a, they give mm-hmm. you all their attention. You're get, never going to have as many attention as you have on the honeymoon. You, you need to be clear about that. That's the peak you're going to have. It's going to only go down from now. So that's where you need to be absolutely sure with them that you have identified what is the pain and what is the KPI that is going to prove that. And once you know that, it's your role to every quarter, every six months. It, it depends uh, on the client. You actually disclose that. You show them what is the impact. You have to do that. And you cannot just expect them to come to you because if you do that, you're going to have a very bad surprise if they don't talk to you for one year and you're like, yeah, I, I did my job. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly when it's renewal, they are like, yeah, we cut you. Okay. So, so is, is, it, is that something you schedule very early on or is that just something you say, okay, guys, we're just getting together every quarter and so and uh, to, 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 to discuss this? We schedule it. But even being scheduled, I can tell you when we ask them, sometimes they don't reply, but we just insist and insist and insist as just to the moment where they just do it. Because if you let them put you lower in their priority, then when it's going to be time to make the budget, you're going to be kicked out. Um, but you also have to find the balance between like, uh, because if you're the, the perverse uh, effect of that is if they start to perceive you as a nuisance, like uh, taking them too much of their time, mm-hmm. they're also going to cut you just because they're like, oh, these guys ask me too much work. So you have to find the healthy balance between making sure you won't always be their priority, but making sure you're always in their head and they always perceive you as a value provider without being perceived as, oh, these guys are just a pain in the ass. I have other things to do. And did you find, uh, I would say, a good trick on that to share, to have the right balance? Um, email communication is important. Uh, you don't always need to communicate by like putting your client in a video meeting 
really gives the perception of requiring you to spend a lot of time. Uh, so don't hesitate to have email communication or extremely brief call. It's not because you're talking to your client that the call has to be more than three minutes. Don't hesitate to do things extremely brief. Also, like try to make as much as possible things as a yes or no. You design everything and just have to say yes or no. Minimize the amount of work they have to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the things you can do so that you can keep providing value without asking them too much time is good. So turnkey, uh, try to do email communication. Um, and when you have time, try to do also relationship. Uh, like uh, if you ask them a meeting and they want to have it, that's also important to try mm-hmm. to really understand them as a personal point of view. What are their personal aspirations? What do they want to do inside the company? The more you understand them personally, their issues, uh, the more you're going to be able to help them on that and therefore they're going to like you. And if they like you, you're just going to be higher in their priority just for the very fact they like you. But this is more like some account management slash customer success management. And typically that's crucial. Uh, many companies underestimate the, the importance of, um, especially if you're a SaaS. If you're a SaaS, your business, it's a, it's a business of you need to be renewed. And so if you have a SaaS business, I don't see a world where you cannot, cannot have a very solid customer success uh, slash account management team. Absolutely. You said today a lot of, I would say, key points. Let me try to summarize them quickly before we move to the last section of every episode. We talked about land and expand. And for you, first important point, uh, as you mentioned, is to prepare the ground before it's to announce what the partnership is going to look like, that you guys are in for the long run so that they know what to expect and they know how you guys are going to work together. So announce that it's going to be about ROI and that uh, you guys are like uh, going to build this business case for the executive committee. Then uh, you get to the point where you have to start proving ROI. And then in that case, it's knowing from that discovery before the sale, um, what is, as you mentioned, the disease, what are their pain? Uh, and, and if you have, uh, you tend to have a more, I would say, like a softer kind of ROI, go and try to find the symptoms, identify them. They say, guys, if you use the software for X, Y, Z amount of time, This is, uh, if we cure this and this symptom, do you agree that we have a case here? And basically you get their buy-in uh, on that process and then you start third point to go into customer success mode in which for you it's about making their life easier, trying to be as close to them as possible. Uh, doesn't have to be always uh, hours and hours of conference calls. It could just be a quick three-minute call, a few emails just to have a quick recap about what's going on and where you guys are at in terms of Um, the uh, KPIs attainment. And then once you get the case, then I guess presentation to the committee. And then that's when uh, either you ask for it or they come naturally to uh, to get you that intro to the other subsidiaries. I couldn't summarize better. Exactly <laughs> okay, perfect. Well, <laughs> great. Uh, I guess I, uh, <laughs> I was a good listener on that one. Perfect. Mm. Let's move to the last section, if that's okay with you, Anthony, which is the Oops, My Bad Time. Yes. Whoops. My bad. For those who turn in the first time, this is a time at the end where the um, the guest shares, I would say, a setback or issues whatsoever that happened during the country expansion mission. So perhaps do you have a, a story to tell, Anthony, that could help uh, others to not repeat the same mistake? 
Okay, so I didn't prepare, but there is one thing that immediately comes into my mind um, is to not be too professoral, too too much per like perceived as like just uh, coming from above and giving a lesson. Okay. So typically, when you work with a client and it's successful and they introduce you, one reflex would be to like I know everything. Look, I did this and this and this and that, and you had so much success. And you're interlo- you're like uh, the person you're talking to might be like, uh, okay, guys, you did that with them. You understand them. You know nothing about me. Don't come here on your high horses thinking you know everything. That's especially the case when uh, you're young and you're talking to someone that is older than you and they might just feel like you're insufferable. And you, that's not what you're trying to do. You're just trying to, you're so eager to show the value you delivered, but you can be perceived as that. So, and that's even true for like other cultures. Um, so you have to be very mindful of the fact that uh, what you're saying, even if it's not the goal, you can be perceived as the, I know everything and no, you know nothing because you never talk to me. You don't know anything about my reality. So be very careful about that because that can happen way quicker than you think, um, especially since you know you provided a lot of value and that's why you've been introduced and you're so eager to prove to your uh, to the person all the value you can provide and look all the numbers is the proof they have all this value. Mm-hmm. So be mindful about that. So that's something that we experience, I experience personally. It's it's a, you, They don't really tell you, you just feel it. And then you just then lose the cells and you feel very bad about it. And you're like, I didn't want that, but yet it still happened. And at the end of the day, it's always your fault. It's never the client's fault. So yeah, be be mindful about that. That's a Uh, problem I experienced. Thanks so much for sharing this. I think it's very important, as you said, to stay humble. And it's not always easy because you you just want to do good, as you said, and then you want to you want to showcase all the uh, all you manage to accomplish with the client, but uh, but it's about perception and and thanks for the feedback on on that experience, Anthony. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to share this experience on how you guys managed to land and expand and 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 basically use that strategy to go internationally. Um, I guess I just have to tell you until next time then. Yes, thank you very much for your question. It was really cool to think about all those topics uh, together, and I really look forward for the for the podcast to be out. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, Anthony. Bye-bye. Bye, Tiffany. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to not miss the next one. And please share it with two people in your network. This is how this podcast gets more visibility and can help more of us to work on international markets. See you soon. See you soon.